turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're just going to read verses 12 and 13 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Don't worry, we will take larger sections at a later time. But uh, 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite books, so I have the, uh, the right and prerogative to slow down at different times and cover some issues that you may not have given much thought to, but certainly ones that I have given a lot of thought to based upon my encounters with different people uh, and their questions throughout, uh, throughout my ministry. Um, but let's, uh, let's hear the Word of God together, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas, Paul says, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of him, and I went on to Macedonia. There's a lot there. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing again upon the reading, the preaching of your word. Pray that you continue to give us uh, insight into your heavenly mind. We pray that you would also give us uh, more of a desire to, uh, to meditate upon your word, to receive it with gladness, to apply it and So many different ways, Lord. Give us the wisdom from heaven that we might be able to please you um, with the gifts and the time and uh, all the other uh, blessings you've given to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I was watching Joel Osteen the other day online. That's where I get most of my sermon ideas. He told me, that God was about to unlock a door for me that has been locked for a very long time. He said to me, now along with thousands of others on that particular day that were watching him, that I was about to walk into something really, really good. I mean really good. That God was about to open the door for me for a new job. I didn't know I was wanting to leave here, but just so you know, I might get a new job soon. A promotion and the miraculous healing all in one, along with many, many other blessings that God was about to unlock a door for me that has been locked for a long, long time. I've been shut out of, but this is my day. This is my year. I don't know how he knows this about me. And that it applies to every other person that listened to his message on that particular day. But I was uh, you know, taken aback how strange it was that uh, the same week I had also received a similar message on a little piece of paper that I'd gotten from a fortune cookie. It too said that I was on the verge of extraordinary wealth and blessing. So don't be surprised if you see me around town next week driving a brand new Rolls Royce. I'm just saying, it could happen. Apparently God is ready to open a door for this for me. So so you know. Of course you know I don't believe any of that. But uh, you'd be surprised how many people do buy into that type of theology. It's uh, Of course it's just a big scam. It's a very common, though, misapplication of God's Word. Many people have done it. Many people continue to do it. Um, There are many more misapplications, misinterpretations of Scripture that you can find along the way, particularly in this regard to the open-door concept. If you were simply to type into the search engine, how do I understand God's will, looking for open doors, you'd find just thousands and thousands of websites giving you a number of... uh, different types of counsel on when to know whether the door is opened by God or whether it's opened by Satan. Whether it's something that uh, you've opened yourself or some other person has opened for you, when you should walk through the door, when you shouldn't walk through the door, uh, things of that nature. Um, 
Uh, it's funny, as I was beginning to prepare this sermon, sometimes I'll start, you know, a week or two in advance, beginning formulating the idea and then let it sort of percolate over time. But when I first came up with this concept, as I was typing the very idea of the open door, I was in my home and suddenly the door opened, literally. The door just swung open and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's happened before, you know, that... Uh, Someone let our dog out, and they didn't shut the door all the way. It got really windy, pushed the door wide open. But I went over to the open door, and I shut it. And I thought, well, should I have left it open? You know, is this God's sign for me? Is this his will for me? If I close it, then I might be disobeying God according to this mentality, right? If I leave it open, then I have a really expensive electric bill. I, I, was, I was torn, right? Or am I supposed to go outside? Do I immediately walk? I didn't have a coat on. Do I freeze to death or do I follow God's will? You, you see how it gets tricky, right? If you're going to follow this mentality, oftentimes believers are very uncertain as to what to do when they find this open door because they believe that somehow God is telling them what to do through this open door approach. But I, I want to tell you, and I want to tell you this very plainly, very calmly, this is not how God shows us his will, Okay? Uh, and I'll, I think I can prove this to you very, very easily from Scripture that not a single time anywhere in God's Word will you find that God, through an open door, is trying to show you what He wants for your life individually. That's not how He works. And uh, unfortunately, thousands and thousands of pastors will tell you that it is, but that's not the case. He doesn't speak to you in that way. He's not going to open a door and then make it some sort of a cloudy thing where you have to figure out whether or not it's God's door or some other door. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not meant to work that way. So through our text this morning instead, I want to show you what the purpose of this open door analogy is, because it's used quite often in Scripture, and I, I want to, to show you that it's, it's, it's not an aspect of God's intending to bless us on one hand or uh, to give us a particular command on the other, but rather it's something much more certain that I think that we can take great comfort in and great courage by when we see an open door that's been given by God in this way. So first of all, um, there are a number of ways that the open door concept is used in Scripture. Certainly the most common way is the literal door, right? A door made out of wood or iron that God is, uh, that, that's either opened or, or that's closed, right? For instance, Mark chapter 1, the author describes how many people in the entire city <clears throat> were coming to the door of the house that Jesus was staying at. In order to be healed. And the door was open, so people were coming in and they were getting healed. It's a great concept. I would love to have been there and seen that myself. And remember on, an, on one particular occasion, if you remember, that the, the, the people had crowded the door so much that no one could even get into the door. And so four of those friends of the paralytic came and opened a door, if you will, through the roof of the house. So if you're going to interpret God's will through open doors, then Maybe you're supposed to make your own door, right? Open it up and, and get in if you need to come and see Jesus in that case. But, but literally, there's nothing about the literal approach whatsoever that would show us that this is either God's will to go or God's will to stay based upon whether the door is open. But most of the time, when we see it used metaphorically, this is where it gets a little bit more um, tricky for a number of people. The first time the word door is used in Scripture, it's used metaphorically. Do you remember? It was actually... Early on in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain uh, had begun to despise his brother somewhat, and you remember God came to him and said, 
Be careful. The door is right there. Sin is crouching at your door. Do you remember that? Sin is crouching at your door, he says. Obviously, he's, he's speaking metaphorically because there's no, sin is not some sort of physical being that was literally waiting to attack Cain when he got back to the house. But rather, he's referring to the harboring of murder within his heart. It's crouching at his door. Well, in the same way, Jesus says something like, strive to enter through the narrow door, right? Again, speaking figuratively here, he's not saying that in order to get to heaven, you have to be a real skinny person. Otherwise, we'd all go on a diet, right? He's, he's saying how narrow it is to get into the kingdom of heaven based upon one thing and one thing alone. You have to know Christ. You have to trust in Christ. You have to follow Christ. You have to believe in Christ. It's very narrow. It's not as wide as you think it is. There are not a thousand ways to get to heaven. It has to go through that narrow door. In fact, Jesus says later on in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am what? The door. I am the gate to heaven. If you want to get to heaven, you have to go through me. There's no other way. And so it seems that one of the, the primary uses of this door metaphor in Scripture is as an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We see that imagery again and again in the book of Revelation when Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, he says, I've set before you an open door which no one can shut. It's a doorway to heaven itself. No one can take that away from you. I've... I've given you access to heaven itself through Jesus, my son, but not once do we find in Scripture any instance of an open door analogy that's used to express that I'm supposed to look for an open door to find out what God's particular will is for me as an individual. Nor do you ever see a prophet or an apostle use the open door concept of determining what they should do uh, in terms of God's will. It simply isn't the case, but there are countless Bible teachers, as I said, who will speak of it in, in that way, but wrongly. It's a, it's a misapplication, a misinterpretation of Scripture where they lead Christians to think one of two things. Either that somehow they missed out on God's perfect will because they didn't go through the door when it was opened, right? So you're sort of leading Christians to doubt, well, did I make the right decision because I didn't go through this door as opposed to that door? Or you have the opposite case where you think, well, there's... More than one door open, so what do I do then? How do I obey God if there's three doors open? Uh, you remember seeing Monsters, Inc.? You remember all those doors? I mean, it's limitless how many doors you have, right? Sometimes it's not just one door that's open, it's many. What am I supposed to do then? The door itself doesn't tell you anything. But somehow people think that they've missed out on God's will. It reminds me of a movie that came out in the 90s about a young woman <clears throat> that uh, it sh sort of showed a divergence of her life based upon two scenarios, whether or not she happened to get on the subway that day. In one instance, she got up to the subway and the door shut. And because she didn't make it on the subway, her life just ended in misery. But then in another scenario, the door opened, she got on, and just many blessings abound. And, and so this, this analogy, and when we try to Christianize something like that, leads us to think, well, if I just would have gone through this door, then I would have inherited all these blessings, but instead I went through the wrong door and I missed God's perfect will. That's not what Scripture teaches. That's not at all a sense of comfort or assurance to the believer. Uh, we all have lost many opportunities in life, if you will, from, at least from our perspective, but the Scripture never teaches us that. God's sovereign, perfect will still works out even through those horrible things that happen in our life. Even our worst failures, even our worst decisions that we've ever made, God still bring something good from that because why because he always works for the good of those who believe in him right 
But there's not, the, there's not some crazy perfect will that we've missed because we didn't walk through a particular door. That only leads to guilt. It doesn't lead to any sense of comfort or, or assurance. Um, in our text this morning, the, the door that was opened for the Apostle Paul in the Lord has nothing to do with discovering God's particular will for his life. <clears throat> Nor is there any sense of duty placed upon Paul that he has to do something based upon that open door. So in other words, there's no command from God that says, you must do this because I've opened this door. It never speaks like that in Scripture. <clears throat> but rather, at least in terms of Paul's ministry, every time he refers to an open door, he's referring to an open door for evangelism. He's referring to an open door of faith for those that he's preaching to, those who he's ministering to, that they have a heart that's ready to receive whatever it is that he has to say. I'll give you a few examples to help you see this. So Acts chapter 14, verse 27. There Paul and Barnabas are, are coming back from their first missionary journey in Galatia. And <clears throat> he said they declared all that God had done <clears throat> and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. If you remember, just as the Scriptures declare that God had opened Lydia's heart to receive the gospel, so now he has opened the door of the hearts of the Galatians to receive the preaching of God's Word. Similarly, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, there Paul tells the church in Corinth that he, would, he, would, he wanted to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because God had opened a wide door for effective work there, even though there were many adversaries. In other words, even though there's persecution that had begun to come out very harsh against them, he still wanted to stay because it was such a, a great and effective opportunity for him to minister there. And then after the, assuring the believers in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, that he was praying for them regularly, he urges them to pray for him as well, praying that God might open for us a door for the word. Thank you. To declare the mystery of Christ while he is in prison. Now notice very clearly here that the Apostle Paul is not praying for an open door that he might get out of prison. He's praying that while he's in prison, that God would open the door of the hearts of the people he's ministering to so that he would have more opportunities to preach while he's in prison. He's not looking for a, a door of blessing for his individual life, as Joel Osteen might have you to believe. He's asking for more opportunities to be faithful in the gospel preaching, the ministry that God has called him to. So it's very clear in our text this morning, along with all of these other texts that I can string with these, to show you Paul's intention when he's explaining the door has been opened for him in Troas, is to not talk about his own personal blessings in life, but rather to talk about God's will in opening the door so that many people in Troas might come to faith. <clears throat> Just as God had opened a wide door of salvation in Galatia and Colossae and Ephesus, so now he's also opened a wide door of faith for those in Troas. And Paul was beginning to see fruit from his labor, and it was exciting. He was sharing with them that this was exciting, that these people had been coming to faith. Now, what does that mean, though, for Paul? This is an important question to ask. What does it mean for the Apostle Paul that God had opened this door of faith? Does that mean he has to stay there and continue to preach to them? Does that mean he has to stay there and continue to minister because God has opened the door of faith to them? Well, apparently not, because we see 
Verse 13, Paul shares that he didn't feel comfortable at all staying there, but rather wanted to make his way to Macedonia because he was very eager to to see Titus. Uh, There are two reasons that Paul had gone to Troas. The first reason was so that he could preach the gospel to them, like he had in so many other places. But the second reason was so that he could also see Titus face to face. He hadn't seen him in some time, and he wanted to see him. Now, this is not the Apostle Paul just really just having a bromance between Titus and Paul. He really wants to see Titus because he misses Titus. That's not why he wants to see him. He wants to see Titus because, if you remember, Paul had written this very severe letter to the Corinthians, rebuking them for not acting upon this church discipline case that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. They were told to cast out this one man from the church because of his sexual immorality, his unrepentance, etc., etc., and they hadn't done it, so he writes this letter to them. And immediately after writing the letter, he says, I can't come to see you now. I have to spend some time here in Ephesus, and then I'm going to make my way to Macedonia. In the meantime... He sends Titus, what we would refer to as an evangelist, evangelist, someone like underneath the apostle going out in his authority. He sends out Titus to see how they respond to the letter. So as he's making his way from, I know it's hard to see without a map, but basically as he's making his way from Asia Minor, which would be in the east to your right, um, he's going to make his way west and he has to go across Asia Minor, and then cross a very small body of water to get to the other part. In other words, to get from what we would think of today as Asia to get over to Europe, he has to take a boat. And Troas is the last city in Asia before you take that boat to get over into Europe, which would be the area of Macedonia, right? You follow me? So he's, he's trying to leave Asia Minor or Turkey and go to Macedonia, which is sort of the area of Greece. He's going from one area to the other, and he wants to meet Titus in Troas. It's a great meeting place because it's before he gets on the ship. But he waits there for some time and he's preaching, he's sharing the gospel with them uh, and the people are coming to faith but Titus never shows up. And so Paul gets very concerned because he's been waiting for a while on pens and needles waiting to see what has happened with the believers of Corinth. He doesn't know. He wants to know out of all the time he spent with them are they going to believe? Are they going to repent? Are they going to love and do what they're supposed to do? Or is this a church that's going to fold, if you will, because they're not willing to do the right thing? So he doesn't feel comfortable, even though the gospel is just advancing like gangbusters in Troas. He says, I can't stay. I need to go find out what happens, what has happened in, in Corinth. Now, why would Paul share this information with them? Already, the Apostle Paul, if you remember, was being accused of not being a super apostle, not as good as some of the other ones, and being kind of wishy-washy because he said he was going to come, and then he didn't come, and, you know, the whole thing, right? So they think he's kind of wishy-washy already. So why is he sharing more wishy-washy stuff? Why is he sharing his weakness with them again? Because he loves them. He wants them to know how much he loves them, how much he's been praying for them by the very fact that he was willing to leave such an blessing of God. God is pouring out revival upon Troas. The Troads are coming to faith in Christ in great numbers. And he says, not that I don't care about that. He says, but I care about you so much. I'm willing to leave all of that. Let someone else work there. Even though it's my harvest, if you will, I'm going to leave it because I'm concerned about you. Again, this is a letter. This is a personal letter he's writing 
to the believers in Corinth. He wants them to know how much he loves them, that I'm willing to leave that rich harvest to come back and find out whether the seeds are even growing in Corinth. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, we, we hear a little bit more that finally when he gets to Macedonia, he still doesn't see Titus. He can't find him. He's not there. And he, he starts talking about uh, the daily pressure that's upon him as a result of the anxiety that he has for all the churches, but particularly the anxiety he has for the church in Corinth. And he shares with us in uh, that same area that he was very concerned. Chapter 7, he, he begins to share that he was still without rest, without peace, because he couldn't find Titus. Finally, Titus shows up and tells him the good news, that they've repented, that they're going to do the right thing, and that they're so eager for Paul to come back. Finally, he has rest, you see. Um, but again, that 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, I can't even imagine being an apostle. I mean, as a, as a pastor alone, be concerned about what's going on in your particular church. He bears this burden of all of these churches all at the same time. And many of them are struggling at different points. And, and he's saying how much it hurts him to see this unbelief, this unrepentance, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, some people in the camp that hold to the open door, determining God's will kind of a thing, they'll say that Paul sinned against God by leaving the open door, by shutting the door, if you will, and then, and then going elsewhere. But, but you'll, you won't see any sense here of remorse on Paul's part. He's not repenting of not going through the open door, if you will. He's not repenting of not taking advantage of the open door, but rather he's acknowledging simply that God has been doing a mighty work there by His Spirit, and yet he's free to go. There's no command here from God that just because the door has been opened for them to receive the gospel by faith that he has to stay there. God can use someone else. He doesn't have to use Paul. But under normal circumstances, Paul would have been delighted to stay with them to reap that harvest, but instead he wants to leave to go check on his people in Corinth. It's interesting, God never specifically told Paul to go preach the gospel to Troas. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture of a particular command to go to Troas. Now we have the Great Commission, right, that he's supposed to go along with everyone else to all the nations of the world, preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations. But it's interesting, even uh, uh, last week in our Bible study at our home uh, on the book of Galatians, we had found out why did, he, why did Paul go to the Galatians in the first place? Was it because God had told him to go to Galatia in particular? Was, was it because Paul had told them to, you know, you have to go minister to this particular people? No, he actually shares with them. The only reason why I came to see you in the first place is because I was really sick. And for some reason, this, it's, it's an elevated area from what they understand. If someone has malaria or whatever else, it's a great place to get respite. And he goes there to get better. And he shares with the Galatians the whole time he's there. He's sick and kind of hideous looking. And they loved him like he was an angel of God. But he was there because of providence. It just so happened that the wrong time of the year for him, he's sick and, and they're ministering to him. But it wasn't because God told him he had to go there. But nevertheless, he was there. Now, there are other times where God does tell Paul specifically to go somewhere else. In fact, uh, this is actually Paul's second attempt to minister to the people of Troas. The first time, if you remember, he comes to Troas. He's ready to preach the gospel. But then all of a sudden, he gets a vision in the middle of the night 
where he sees a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Come over here and minister to us. And so, having spent maybe a few hours in Troas, maybe a day or two, he leaves. Poor Troas, right? I mean, you got the Apostle Paul and he just leaves. He packs up his bags, he goes to Europe and he begins to minister there instead because he had received a vision for God to do that. So, two attempts now. To minister to the people of Troas, the first attempt, God tells him to go somewhere else. The second attempt, he just decides to go somewhere else because he's so concerned about Corinth. So two times, Troas gets the short end of the stick. Reminded me of that passage that Mark read earlier in Isaiah 42, speaking of Christ's ministry in the future, that he's been promised to go to the nations. The coastlands, says, are waiting for his message. They're waiting for his law. Particularly, the Troas is one of the cities on the coastland. Now they're going to have to wait a little longer because someone else is in greater need at that moment than they were of Apostle Paul's ministry. They wouldn't have to wait too much longer, but it'd be a year later before he comes back. Big, wide-open door for the gospel. Paul leaves, and it won't be until a year later that he comes back. And... Uh, it's interesting, when he does come back, he's desperate to spend time with the people in Troas. In fact, if you remember the scenario, he only has a week with them before he has to go somewhere else. Just a week. I mean, he spends like two years in Ephesus, a year in Corinth, and he gives Troas one week. But to make up for it, he preaches to them all night long. And I mean all night long, to the point where you remember Eutychus? Remember that young man? He's in the window listening to the sermon. All of a sudden he falls asleep, and then he falls out of the window, and he dies. Sort of how I felt like at the men's retreat this weekend, but I didn't get a wink of sleep. I fell asleep during the first talk entirely. If I were in the window, I would definitely be dead. It was like a zombie. But Paul raises him from the dead. And you think, man, traumatic experience. I probably should leave now that the guy's dead. And we're, he's back to life. It's good. We, we need to go. No. He falls out the window about midnight, restores him. They have communion right after he dies and is resurrected. And then he preaches again until 6 o'clock in the morning, until the sun rises. Because he wants to give them all of him while he can, while he's there. Because he's given them the short and the stick for so long. He's like, I'm going to give you a sermon. You're going to get a sermon. <laughs> All night long. So today's going to be a little bit longer than normal. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. On the last day he was there, he preaches this sermon. Wants to give all of himself. But it's not the last time he goes to Troas either. I, I love history. If you haven't figured that out yet. But if you put the parts of the Bible together and you see where he's been and where he's going, it's quite fascinating. Because toward the end of his ministry, we find in 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 13, he's telling Timothy to bring to him his necessary his supplies that he, he'd like because he's in prison. This time he's not going to get out of prison. So Paul's been in prison at least a couple times. This is his last imprisonment before he's beheaded. Second Timothy's last book that we have. Okay, And so he tells Timothy, um, it's, it, winter's coming basically. He's in a cold, dark dungeon cell knowing that he's probably going to have his life snuffed out soon. He tells Timothy, bring me my cloak. Where's Paul's cloak? It's in Troas. 
because he had spent a long time there over a winter before. Don't know when, but one of the previous winters he had spent there. And he also says, uh, he, he particularly says, go to the house of Carpus, because apparently that's where he had been staying. And he says, and bring me my books and my parchments as well. So think about this. Um, the Apostle Paul had his library in Troas. Do you think he spent some time in Troas? Certainly did. He made up for all the times he shortchanged Troas. Brings the gospel to them. Even though there was this wide door of opportunity for them, he felt like, well, i got to go to Corinth. And then later he comes back and makes up for it and spends a good amount of time in Troas. What is my point with all this? Well, God had not told Paul specifically to go to Troas. It's one of the places that as he was going along, he decided to minister there, and, and he did it with all that he could. But in the absence of a specific command from God, there's no sin on Paul's part. He was free to stay or free to go, right? Reminds me of that 80 song, should I stay or should I go, right? Same thing. You, we pray through these things. We ask for wisdom from heaven, but there was no command. So he was free to do one or the other. And uh, we find the opposite's the case, too. Sometimes it seems as if the door's completely closed, and yet Paul didn't take that as a sign where, I guess I'm not supposed to stay here. I'm not supposed to come here. You remember when he goes to Lystra, uh, one of the regions of Galatia, and he begins to preach, and it seems like at first people are responding, but then all of a sudden all the Jews hate his guts and stone him. Almost to death. Well, he leaves. Good idea, right? He leaves. Let's go minister somewhere else. A couple days later, he comes right back. Like, are you an idiot? The door's closed. It's like, no, it's not. There are believers there. I'm, I'm going to go back and minister to them again. And so he does. doesn't matter whether the door is open or closed in that sense. He had a heart to give them more of the gospel. So he goes back. Now, if you remember when Jesus first commands the disciples to go out throughout the region of Judea to preach the gospel, the first time they're sent out, the 72 he tells them, you know, what to take, what not to take, et cetera, et cetera. But he says, do not go to the Samaritans. Do not go to the Gentiles. Just go to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember that? And, uh, and he says, when you go to them, you know, whoever receives you, you know, go into their house and you can stay there for a while if they'll, t- they'll have you. And if not, then wipe the dust off your feet, right? So we know that. But he doesn't tell them which towns to go to. He basically, it, literally he says, as you're going... If a house opens, to, then stay there. Great. If they don't, then move on. You know, whatever kind of thing. But, but at the same time, there's no particular town he tells them where to go. It's the same thing with the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And he says the difference between Matthew 28 and Matthew 10 is that now he says, go to the Gentiles. Go to the Samaritans. Go to every nation all over the world and give them the gospel. But he doesn't say, go to this town or to this town. At least in the general commission, he doesn't do that. It's pretty much, in fact, the command is not go at all in the Greek. Rather, it's as you're going, make disciples. The point is, wherever you find yourself, make disciples, which is actually quite freeing as a Christian that uh, there's not a particular place you always have to go to. But wherever you are, preach it. Wherever you are, share the gospel. There are opportunities that abound. You just got to open your eyes. You see them. They come, and you're there. You're God's ambassador. Use that, right? Uh, but it's not always something specific that you have to follow in that regard. Just be faithful. So it doesn't mean, on the one hand, that if there's an open door, you have to take it. It also doesn't mean that if the door's closed that you can't go through. 
Most of you, or well, many of you might be familiar with Brother Andrew. You heard that name before? God Smuggler? Heard that name? He's called God Smuggler because he was well known for smuggling Bibles into countries that were seemingly closed to the gospel. If you haven't read that book, do we have that one in the library? Come on, Lee, catch up with me here. God Smuggler, it'll be in the library next week. All right, so God Smuggler, terrific book. Uh, basically a man who... Um, his sole desire in life was to go to countries that seemingly were closed to the gospel. And during the whole time of the Iron Curtain, Soviet communism, he would put Bibles in the back of the trunk of his car to, to go across the checkpoint from one country into a Soviet country. And if you remember, for those of you who know the story well, instead of praying that God would open the eyes for people to see, he would literally pray before he got to the checkpoint, Lord, close the eyes of the guard so they can't see. And then sometimes it did happen on occasion where the guards would open the suitcase that's full of Bibles that were illegal, and they wouldn't notice that they were Bibles. And they would even ask him, he's like, do you have Bibles? Like, sure I do. You know, sort of say it like almost as if he's trying to be funny, but he wasn't going to lie. And they didn't see it. And he went right on through. The highlight of his ministry that uh, happened in 1981 he and his team floated a custom-built barge off the coast of China under the cover of darkness. They smuggled in one day over a million Bibles to Chinese Christians. In one day. The country was closed to Christianity. One day, it was ushered into these Chinese Christians that, that came on the coast, got the Bibles, and then immediately dispersed all over the country. Started giving out Bibles everywhere. You wouldn't be surprised the name of his ministry was called Open Doors Ministry. Because seemingly they were closed. But he said, well, they shouldn't be. <laughs> so he prayed that they'd be open. And then even when they weren't, he made a hole through the roof. He said, we're going to get in anyway in that regard. He quote, he said, I literally believe that every door is open to and I believe every door is open to proclaim the name of Christ as long as you're willing to go and not worry about coming back. Every door is open. China's a case in point. I, I don't want to belabor it too much, but I want to give you a little history. Again, if you don't love history, there's something wrong with you. China has a very volatile history regarding Christianity and missions. Up and down, up and down. 1809, Robert Morrison and his fellow missionaries were the first ones to be allowed to go into China specifically to minister to the people there, but they're only allowed in two very small regions of China where there was trade that was going on. And so for just a couple years, they were allowed to go in and, and, and give the gospel, but within a decade and a half, the emperor revised the law stating that any Europeans would be sent to, sentenced to death for trying to spread Christianity to anyone in China. So it was open, now it's closed. Then by 1860, there was a famous second opium war between Great Britain, France, China, and as a result, the whole country was now open to Christian missions because the Europeans won. They basically forced it upon them. Now, Christianity is allowed, and that's when China Inland Mission was first created, 1865. For 30 years, missionaries were spreading out to every major city and province in China. I mean, it was just gangbusters. But just when it seemed that there was this wide open door for ministry, that's when the Boxer Rebellion takes place. Now, if you don't know the Boxer Rebellion, 1899, 1901, basically it was a number of uh, 
uh, uh, local Chinese anti-colonial, anti-Christian, anti-foreign group, if you will. And it's funny, they were called the, the Boxer Rebellion because back then we didn't have a word for karate. They called it Chinese boxing. But the reason how they were designated was because all these men who were anti-colonial, anti-foreign, etc., they were all really good at karate. And so, like, don't mess around with the boxers, is what they said, basically, the, the Boxer Rebellion. But then after two or three years, after they had their way and began to kill Christians and shut down churches, et cetera, et cetera, then the door was open again. And now, 180 missionaries were spread out across everywhere for a time. But only after hundreds of missionaries had been killed, their children had been killed, 32,000 Chinese Christians had been killed during the Boxer Rebellion, and now it's open again. Back and forth, back and forth. Beginning of the 20th century was known as the golden age of Christian missions in China. By 1919, there were just almost 10,000 missionaries in China. Just terrific. But then World War II happens. The Japanese take over China. They shut it down again, completely shut down. And that's when you know Eric Little. Remember that name? Chariots of Fire. After he runs his famous race, he goes and takes the gospel again to the same place his parents had taken the gospel to, China, his homeland. And for a time it goes well, but then the country's closed again. He sends his wife and his children to Canada. He stays there. He dies in internment camp. Open closed, open closed. 1949, now the Chinese Communist Army has taken over completely. All religions are considered illegal. <laughs> Beginning of the 21st century, 130 million Christians worshiping undisturbed in illegal house churches. They shut the country down. Illegal churches pop up everywhere. And it goes well. But now, things have changed again. The government has installed more than 170 million facial recognition cameras primarily near churches so they can see exactly who's going to church to keep tabs on them. Don't trust them. 2018, every Bible disappeared from every online shop. Could not get a Bible in China. 2019, all Bible apps on smartphones were withdrawn from the app stores completely. Call up Apple Store, and you'll see. They don't allow it in China. 2020, all Christian books disappeared from every online shop in China. 2021, every Christian gathering was now considered illegal. Don't call yourself a Christian in China. It could be very dangerous. Clearly, it's an orchestrated movement against Christianity. Satan certainly has a role in that. But does that mean now it's closed? What does it mean? How do you interpret that? Does that mean we don't go to China anymore? Let's move on to Korea? What, what do you do? I, I don't think that you can answer these questions by trying to use that open-and-door analogy. It just doesn't work. And it's the same way even for individuals you think about it how many here have been praying for someone in their life for years to come to faith in christ and the door seems to be closed do you give up on them well i guess it doesn't work i'm not gonna go with them I'm, i guess i need to move on to somebody else you cannot make a decision based upon open and door open and closed doors it just doesn't work and i tell you it's freeing here's why it's freeing first of all it's freeing to know that first of all i'm not absolutely necessary for God to save anybody. God doesn't have to use me. He can use somebody else. We were listening to the uh, testimony of uh, Dan Nolte, one of the uh, pastors in our presbytery. And um, he was sharing the other day, yesterday, or the day before, how he first 
came into contact with Christianity, didn't grow up in any, any Christian background, never read the Bible before, didn't know anything about anything. He's dating a girl that he's sleeping with who says, let's go to church. And he says, what's that? She's like, well, we, they sing a couple songs and we listen to someone who tells us good things. And he's like, okay, sure, you know, whatever. And he goes, and lo and behold, the first night he gets there, you know, there's some sort of altar call of some kind, and immediately he walks down the aisle and makes a profession of faith. And now his girlfriend's irate with him, absolutely hates his guts, and is cursing him out at the end of the service. And they, she leaves the service. No desire whatsoever for him to come to the Lord by faith. She just wanted for the both of them to feel good from the message because it was sort of a health and wealth gospel type of thing, and that was it. God used some unbelieving girl to bring this guy to Christ. Does God really need you? <laughs> Think about it. I mean, God could use a donkey if he wants to, right? He doesn't need you. So if you don't get the door just right, it's okay. I mean, it's not the end of the world. There are many other doors that open. It's, it's, it, uh, there's just not, there shouldn't be that sense of guilt, right, on the one hand. Now, I, I'd say this. To, to counter that, I, I'd say if every single time you see a door that's open and somebody's right for the gospel and you're like, mm, nah, there's probably something wrong with you, right? I mean, I get Jonah, he's like, he hates Gentiles, you know, but for the most, we're Gentiles, we ought to like that, you know, we ought to like the fact that somebody wants to come to faith in Christ and, and be used by that. But if he doesn't use us, he'll use somebody else. I, I love the fact that it's not all dependent upon me. God can do whatever he wants when he wants. The Spirit moves however he wants, Right? At the same time, I'd say this, when you see God open a door, wow, what a blessing that is. When you see God move in someone's heart that just seemed absolutely cold to the gospel, and you, and you see they're tracking with you, and now they're like, tell me more. What a blessing it is that God can use you in that way. What even more, what a blessing it is when the door is closed and you've been praying for that person for years, and God uses your prayers to open the door. What a blessing that is. Uh, don't give up, friends. Don't give up. You just don't know what God can do and when he, when he can do it and how he'll do it. You just don't know. Don't use the open door, closed door concept to make your decisions. That's not what it's for. All it's no, When the door's open, you'll know it. And preach it. When it's not, do the same. <laughs> what does Paul say? In every season. Doesn't matter what season it is. Preach it. It's the same concept. Now, we can always use our time freely in, in, in different ways, but at the same time, know that God, if he doesn't use you, he's going to use someone else. But at the same time, there are times when he just pours out his spirit. You just have to be there and open your mouth and be ready to share the gospel with them. I, I, th I think I've shared with you before I mean, every now and then it just falls in your lap. I've had two people in my life. One of them, literally, I was living on the church campus. A guy drives up, gets out of this car. He's in some sort of sports car wearing a leather jacket. He just comes up. He's like, what do I have to do to be saved? I'm like, come in. You know, and, I mean, it, I, I, I could have told him anything that night. And he'd be like, okay, let's do that. I mean, that, that's, and that's how it was with Dan Nolte. I mean, he's basically just telling me. Tell me what I need to do to be saved. He's willing to walk down. He didn't even know why he's walking down the aisle. He had no idea. He just knows his life's a wreck. He has to find hope, peace, the gospel. 
and he does. So when you have that opportunity, take advantage of it. When you don't have that opportunity, continue to pray for it. But in the meantime, just be faithful where you're at. And God will, God will use you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your blessing upon all the ministry that you've given to us. We know that there are many times in which we have failed to do the things that you have commanded us to do. And we know that you've given us many more opportunities later on. We, we thank you, Lord, that even with the bad testimony that we've given, uh, sometimes even yelling at people that we've been trying to witness to and arguing with them, we know that somehow you can still save people even through our greatest faults and our greatest flaws. But Lord, at the same time, we do want to be used by you. We pray, Father, that you would open doors for the gospel. You would open doors that we might see some harvest and we might see some fruit from all the prayers that we've been praying all these years for those that we love and for those that we'd like to see come to an understanding of the gospel. Lord, help us not to, to doubt. Help us not to grow bitter and, and, and doubtful as we see these uh, sort of missed opportunities in, in our eyes. But we pray, Father, that you would do a, a wonderful, marvelous work. And as we're waiting for that marvelous work, Lord, help us use us in the simple works as well, we pray.